Good morning, everybody. This is your host, Eric Kress, with Eric Seifert and Laura. We are here for Twig 211, and we are going to talk about Mr. Eric's uh, article, Future of Mobile Free-to-Play, um, his prolific writing on the internet about all things gaming on mobile. Um, I'm going to chat about the most boring subject ever, which is loot boxes, but there's been <laughs> some activity going on there, which I think is interesting and maybe a sign of things to come. Who knows? And then we have a bunch of smaller updates about what's going on in the world of mobile, including layoffs at our favorite place, Wildlife, um, and some obviously some big successes going on in console uh, continually. And the most important update of the week, bar none, World of Warcraft is out again. The next expansion, Dragonflight, is out. And I have been playing like a crack addict for the last two days. I am at level cap already, which is a sign of my addiction. Um, and uh, actually, it's pretty good. It seems to be pretty solid performance-wise. A few hiccups here and there. But, uh, you know, World of Warcraft, the best game ever made, clearly. Um, it has everything. Um, so uh, I, I, I bring come back. Come back to the fold. All right. How are you guys doing? Anything new? I'm having a rough, rough week. Uh, this is very, like, in the weeds, but I don't go into do too much detail. But I was running a popular syndicate for a long time before I started my fund. I stopped because I kind of saw the writing on the wall that, you know, this, the, the, the model of running a syndicate with doing a bunch of SPVs was unsustainable. And I saw that, um, I was getting like sort of worse and worse customer support from the company that basically everyone uses to launch and maintain SPV. So I stopped. That's why I started the fund is because the administrative effort became too onerous. And because I kind of saw the writing on the wall, unfortunately I was correct. Um, and the company that basically managed SPV creation for all of Silicon Valley, which is called Assure, has announced that they are just shutting down abruptly at the end of the oh, year. That's what that was about. Everyone. Oh, so no the, way. the thing is, when you started an SPV, you pre-funded the management or the maintenance fee for 10 years. And, right. and what they've said, and that covered basically just tax prep, right? Because they have to issue K-1s to all the investors. It's not that much work. But, you know, if you have a lot of investors, it's just a, it's a process. And they were doing all this manually, right? So they would take that fee up front and then, you know, they would man ma maintain your SPV over the course of 10 years. Well, what they're saying is, yo, we took the money up front, but we're not paying any of that back. So you're on your own. You're on your own for 2022 tax, uh, you know, tax work. Oh, and my God. Uh, good luck. You've got to migrate all of these companies because every SPV is an LLC. You got to migrate all these LLCs by the end of the year. Um, and so now everyone's scrambling. I think I have a solution. But it's going to be very, very, very expensive to me personally. Um, but I think I've, I've found a solution to manage my way through this so that you know, the SPVs are maintained, that the, our interest in these companies uh, is maintained. But it's been a nightmare of uh, I, the last you know, week. I, I saw your tweet. And I, 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 for some reason, I didn't, get, I didn't, I didn't look into it as, as deeply. And I thought it was having to do with like ad tech again, right? No. And I, but I, <laughs> Anyway, just, but now I know. So, yeah. so Joachim is going to be fucked too, right? No, like, well, I think so. He used a Finnish company. So, oh, so this is this of course. Uh, sure, it was you, it was a U.S. based company. Um, All right. Anyway, uh, but yeah, you so you just saw a three letter acronym and you assumed ad tech. <laughs> yeah, basically, basically. Yeah, that's uh, anyway, that's crazy. All right. Um, how about you, Laura? Any uh, new news? I mean, significantly less dramatic. I think the the highest drama I've had. I'm trying to buy a car. And I have no idea which one to buy. Oh, dude. Are you, dude, the only thing I know about besides games is cars. You want car advice? Just let me know what you want to get by. I'll help you out. Great. I got you. What are you looking at? A compact SUV that's not a crazy color. Okay. As far as I got. There's a million of those. Awesome. Yeah, you got what's your, well, we won't talk budget. I got you. I got you. Great. <laughs> we'll do it after the call. Yeah. Um, Okay, uh, let's see. What are we doing here? All right, who's doing updates first? Laura, go ahead you want, with the. Uh, you want me to cover the oh. latest update on Activision Microsoft? 
Yeah, yeah, let's do that really quickly because I think people are sick of this subject, but uh, it, there, there, there's still lots of press going on around this, but and this is actually the most important one. Go ahead. So short update. Um, I think the, the Economist actually covered this the best. I mean, everyone's covering it right now uh, because uh, regulators are getting, uh, there's now talk of that this deal may not go through. Um, let's see what happens. There is still, nothing's been called yet. Um, but there's a lot of speculation around what's going to happen, um, what I think the biggest, well, Eric's already mentioned this, but um, it's coming back to light where if they're worried about uh, Microsoft just owning too much and putting restrictions on their, you know, on Call of Duty and Microsoft saying, no, 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 it's not going to happen just simply isn't enough of a guarantee at this point. Yeah, well. Actually, this is a bit of a surprise. I actually thought the FTC would just basically rubber stamp this shit because they really have no teeth when it comes to these sorts of things. Like, they haven't been very active. Um, my original assumption, if you could go back way back when, when it first happened, was that the European Commission, as well as the UK, would hold this thing up. And that actually turned out to be true. But I thought the FTC would just let this thing go. Um, now, they're not saying that they're going to cancel it as the uh, as the clickbait title would suggest <laughs> they would say that they would probably have more stipulations around what Microsoft can do after the acquisition work to close. But um, so anyway, I think uh, this is actually something that I didn't expect uh, and, and not really good news, uh, generally speaking. Although what's interesting is it has no impact on the stock price. Generally, the stock should go down if 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 they don't think the thing is going to go through. So I'm not trying quite clear as to what's going on there. Well, it, but it, it did. It, we, it did briefly after the announcement. Like it dropped okay. some like six or seven percent that day, but it's back up. So my my um, I think like my imp interpretation of this of these events is is pretty well encapsulated by uh, what Ma Michael Pactor has been writing. So Mac Michael is a, a well known uh, oh, heaven help us gaming analyst. Uh, well, he's game, gaming in general consumer tech, but uh, he wrote a tweet. He said, the U.S. FTC is likely to be crushed in court, which is why they won't sue. This gets resolved by Microsoft agreeing to a list of demands to maintain the status quo, and then the FTC drops its objections, right? So uh, right, that's right. And, and, and really, what is the crux of this? The crux of this is Call of Duty, right? I, I saw some stat the other day that said something like um, Sony and Microsoft combined own something like 80% of cloud gaming uh last year or this year or something but that's that's tiny right i, I really don't think no. cloud i mean maybe people are projecting like massive growth there but but even if they did well then sony's a major contender so what's the problem the problem is call of duty the problem is the call of duty franchise and if, if microsoft makes that totally exclusive to xbox and all they have to do i think to 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 alleviate these concerns is say we will not make call of duty exclusive to xbox right and then maybe but get they, some timeline yeah okay fine just, I, I don't think that'll be enough, but we'll see. Just to put some numbers like to that, sorry. Um, so if you look at the top grossing film of the year so far, Top Gun Maverick took $1 billion in the first month. The biggest game, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, took the same amount in 10 days, just right. to support your... Yeah. No, no, I look, I, I've been very consistent on this, I, I think anyway, is that I do think this is an anti-competitive move by Microsoft, but there are not rules on the books in the U.S. to enforce this anti-competitive behavior. And I'm, that's as far as my legal knowledge goes, right? Having said that, in the U.K. and in Europe, they don't need as precedent. So they can actually block this thing without really um, having laws on the books. And so so actually what, you're, what Pactor says, which I can't believe I'm agreeing with Pactor because he's often wrong, Pactor, but um, the... Um, that I agree with what he's saying is that they're not going to be able to, there's no teeth to what they're doing. They're just going to require them to have some kind of uh, uh, d demand. And so if it is a 10 year exclusivity or 10 year deal in which they keep call of duty, maybe that's going to be enough for the FTC, but we still could have issues in Europe. Um, well, yep. So we'll see. One thing I would point out, it, it would be actually, it would be pretty cool to have a, like an antitrust expert come on the podcast to talk and like do one episode dedicated to it and then never talk about it again. <laughs> Uh, but just get like a real expert because I mean, you know, I'm I, I re, I, you know I can read up on this, but I don't have a no no offense to my lawyer friends out there. The few that I have is that those those are the most boring podcasts <laughs> ever. Like even when we did it, 
Oh, I'm totally blanking. We had lawyers on for for something. I don't know if it was this or something else. One guy was actually really good, but the, it's just it's so it's so technical yeah. and and mind numbingly deep, you know, in terms of like going into this. It's like you can never stay high level enough on for legal yeah. issues. It seems, but you're probably right. We should probably do it. I I I maybe I'll do an interview with that guy that uh, that articulated this well way back when. Um, so I, all right. I would one thing that I was putting out that. The FTC has been very aggressive, though, under Lena Khan, right? I mean, they have gone after, I think, a lot of cases that they don't even necessarily think they have a high likelihood of winning, right? I mean, they went after Facebook uh, just on general, like, monopoly grounds, and then they chased them down for the, the that VR acquisition. They've been very aggressive. So they've been much more aggressive, I think, than, than, Pat, than in the past. Yeah. And that, and that, that's actually part of it. What's political versus legal. Right? right. And, and, and so that, that, that's what adds a layer of complexity. But again, what I've understood is that the, the laws on the books, the way monopolistic behavior works in, in, in legal definition is just not tripped up by these type of activities because the market is just too big you right. know, to trip it up. But anyway, all right. Yeah. We should get someone on. I, I have someone in mind, actually, maybe I'll do an interview. We could just walk through this whole thing. I'm supposed to do a a whole presentation on this Microsoft thing to investors uh, in Europe in, in the next couple of weeks. I gotta get I gotta get frosted better, on this shit. You better right. learn learn it then. <laughs> I better learn fast. Get my legal degree. I, anyway. This podcast is brought to you by Google for Games. It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash Google for Games or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for Games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for Games. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing the full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. Um, all right, continue, Miss Laura. Another short update. So, Boom Beach Frontiers is shutting down. It's shutting down as of January next year. So, the servers will be turned off. Uh, it soft launched at the end of October 2021. Had a quick look through Sensor Tower. The revenue per download from launch was about half of the original Boom Beach. Um, it also dwarfed the original Boom Beach dwarfed this uh, front lines in total revenue. But as a reminder, uh, Boom Beach original did launch in 2014, different market. Um, when uh, similar, so I think this was this was developed, I believe, by uh, Space Ape Games. But they um, they're following a similar a similar path forward with how they're messaging players. So I believe it came out on Reddit, and same reasons we set high standards for our games um, and. The new features and I think the changes that they were they were making were not enough to see substantive changes in KPIs. So very similar to um, Clash Quest when they decided to um, 
and Clash Quest. Had a quick peek. I mean, while they share the same name, the games seem very different in play. Um, don't have too much more to add here. Either of you have a take on this? It's, it's funny. I actually met with a guy who, uh, what's his name? At uh, GamesCon. Yeah, he said they were having all kinds of issues. It was it challenges with the, the, C- game. the CEO of Space Ape? Yeah. Simon Hayden. No, yeah, Simon. No, he's a great Simon's guy. A, Simon's the COO. John oh, John Erner. Oh, John right. no, no, but yes, no, no. I, I yeah, it was Simon that was there. Uh, he's a fan of the podcast. He's he is a really really cool guy. Yeah, he's yeah Simon's, great. Simon's great. Yeah, um, I'm not too surprised. I mean, look, the the, the metrics weren't good. I, I you can't really compare it to the original Boom Beach, I know. just to be clear, because it's only been in beta, right? It's only been a beta. Um, it's really different mechanics, and it's it's a worlds yeah. of difference just in terms of market they're entering in now. I feel bad. I think you know he put a lot of heart and soul into this game. So they have beat Star. Hopefully, the next thing will work. They have beat Star, so that's not. They still have super successful right, right, beat right. Star. Uh, oh, that's what he was giving me shit for because I called it mice nuts. That's what it was. I forgot. I called I called beat Star mice nuts uh, for Supercell, and he's like, "Yeah, well, thanks a lot. Our game is mice nuts, huh?" That, that that's what it was. Oh, anyway, he's he was a good guy. Eric, did you see that when when those text messages were like released from? the uh trial between elon and and twitter when he was trying to back out of the deal david Sachs like had messaged him saying he would he would contribute some money to because they were raising money to um to do to to do the deal and he said yeah i I can contribute some money but whatever i contribute will be mice nuts (laughs) maybe he listens to twig man no (laughs) that's an investment that's by the way that's a totally investment banking term back in the 90s like that's been around for a long time. I just, I'm, I'm just bringing it back. All right. Um, it, but by the way, like that's something that probably could have just stayed in the nineties. <laughs> no, no. I don't think that needed to be brought no, no, back, no. but okay. <laughs> hey, I got, I have to have some catchphrases, you know, otherwise. You know. All right. Oh, bad news. Uh, wildlife <laughs> is uh, announced uh, massive layoffs. They say close to 300 people have left and I, what i didn't know is what the denominator is like how many people they've had but because they've been ramping up extremely high evidently over the years uh so uh these guys they're in brazil right these two founders are like 25 years old right <laughs> like running this multi-billion billion dollar like unicorn and uh so they're going through layoffs right now uh any other comments on that yeah sad um quite a Quite a big layoff. They've just raised a lot of money. I don't know. I don't actually remember the dollar amount, so I don't want to quote a, a number. Um, but yeah, they just raised a big round, and yeah, I, yeah, the market conditions have changed, and I'm going to talk about that later. But I mean, it's sad when this happens. Yeah, I, I just don't know how many people they have. I think it was in like 1,200 I, I, total. It's a big oh, company. It's big, yeah. Oh, that's a big drop of people. Then, um, yeah, that's crazy. All right. I got in trouble for saying bad things about wildlife before, so I'm gonna I'm gonna keep out keep keep my mouth shut this time. Um, all right, next. Uh, oh, Pokemon. So the Pokemon game, which um, has gotten a lot of flack this time around, it come, obviously it comes out in Nintendo. They've been annualizing this thing, which is something they've never done before. Usually, it's at least every two years. So now they're coming out with one every year, and everyone is bitching and moaning because this game. Is not doing very well, and I think we talked about it. It's not performing well on the old hardware that is the Switch. But despite the quality issues, it's the fastest-selling Switch game ever, doing 10 million units in the first week, I think. Um, uh, and and, and uh, it just goes to show, like you know, like part of you know the core gaming uh, market is lots of uh, vocal minorities of core gamers bitching and moaning about all these different things yet when push comes to shove they buy it anyway you know what i mean and so i I get you just can't listen to the haters out there uh and and either either i mean plus the game is good it's just that the 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 frame rates and and the technical problems are kind of like hindering it but the actual game design is actually new and fresh for pokemon so that's good um but it's also like the Switch audience is absolutely massive, right? They're just dying for something to play. And so the, when these games come out, they have nothing else to buy. So so anyway, um, you know, so that side of the business is looking good. I mean, obviously, you know, Nintendo um, is going to have another hardware transition ahead of them. But, but, uh, but you know, there's still lots of active players on, on, on Nintendo. That's really good. Um, 
All right, go ahead, Seifert. Yeah, so industry move announcement. Uh, Javier had shared this just this morning, so I, I think it's fresh news. Uh, so the former lead game designer or a a for, formerly a lead game designer at Riot, uh, Candace Thomas, has announced that she is joining Supercell's new U.S.-based game studio on Twitter. And her bio says, I clicked on her Twitter bio, and it says that she's located in Austin. So I don't know if that's um, outdated or what? or if Supercell's studio is located in Austin or they're just doing fully remote or whatever. But um, I certainly hope that Supercell is opening an office in Austin. That would be great. Uh, we could uh, turn Austin into the game dev, game dev hub of North America. This is really interesting. Okay. There's there's a couple things that aren't computing for me, and and correct me if I'm wrong. I wish actually I wish Mishka was here because he he knows Supercell really well. My understanding is that they are pretty adamant about keeping development resources and stuff within the walls of Helsinki or you know within their their close at hand. Like they're not doing remote studios as much. Like they had a, a publishing arm out here in San Francisco for a while, but they, they didn't bring any development. So this seems like a complete change of strategy. I was actually approached recently about doing some kind of like strategy work outside of mobile for Supercell, which I think is a fucking brilliant idea, by the way. Actually, one of the projects I actually would do for a co company would be like figuring out what they should be making outside of mobile at Supercell. Um, but this is exactly kind of this I don't know her uh Candace I don't know Candace but I this is exactly what they need to be doing is thinking outside of of mobile and bringing their franchises and their IP to um cross platform PC whatever um so it's a really really interesting move but I guess it's it's it seems to be a departure and anybody from Supercell can call me and correct me but like um of creating uh development resources outside of uh Helsinki. So well, they but they eh. they announced this a while back, right? Do you remember that? They announced this like no. a year or eighteen months ago. They said we're going to launch a studio. Um, they announced the the person who was taking it over. I I don't recall who that was. Um, and this person was like, yeah, I've taken on a new role and within Supercell, we're going to build a U.S. based game studio, and I'm looking to hire great people. And we haven't quite figured out mm -hmm. where it's going to be located yet. Anyway, and this is like I think this is the first public news of someone joining that studio i mean i haven't been paying that close attention but anyway all right we're gonna we're gonna get to the bottom of this and report back but i think this is exciting news for supercell like they're 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 making the move slowly you know like in slow motion <laughs> a year and a half later they hire someone like candace but uh maybe it's a sign of things to come um all right headlines Loot boxes, fucking boring. I know, you know, I know this is a boring subject. <laughs> but, and we've been talking about this for a long time. We haven't brought it up in a while. There hasn't been that much news recently. Um, but, uh, but I think the good news here is that we are seeing two headlines. Someone is typing and it's not me this time. Sorry, that was me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, there's good news. Like, I personally think this is getting legislated properly. Basically, they're restricting loot boxes for those that are 18-year-old and, and younger. And, and again, this makes sense to me. Um, so first one is the loot box uh, bill was filed. Filed. It wasn't passed in Australia. Um, and the bill is basically um, is amending some classification that requires uh, loot boxes to have an 18-plus classification, uh, which basically... It keeps children um, from purchasing and playing games with loot boxes, um, which, again, I think makes sense. In the bill, it basically says, by tempting young players with potential to win game-changing items, encouraging risk-taking behavior for a possible war, delivering random prizes on an intermittent basis, encouraging them to spend money, it's clear that loot boxes give rise to many of the same emotions and experiences associated with poker machines and other traditional activities. This is what Wilkie says, the guy who's kind of running this charge. Now, he's been <laughs> going after this for a long time and been very unsuccessful, it seems. In 18, he did some kind of uh, inquiry into loot boxes um, and and wanted to basically classify it as gambling. In 2020, um, he wrote this piece uh, in in this article called Protecting the Age of Innocence. Um which he wanted age verification for online gaming and pornography. So he's, he's got to be in his bonnet on this thing for a long, long period of time. Um, but 
at the same time, there was another announcement about a study that was done in the UK, uh, a three-year study uh, published by the Newcastle and Loughborough Universities. I don't know, whatever. But it's basically a three-year study that looks at the impact of kids uh, on, on loot boxes and basically talking about the financial, emotional harm to teenagers and, and children. Now, the thing with this thing is there was only like 42 families, you know, and so the children were like five to 17. That doesn't seem to be that extreme. It's certainly not like a, a, a deep, deep study. But in short, they found that um, the, uh, the spending of video games was highly alluring digital items and they were, av- a- they were advertised to them using techniques borrowed from regulated gambling type activities. So um, anyway, they basically are basically bringing the parallels between the visual and auditory design of these games versus the chance mechanisms that you see in traditional gaming machines on the casinos is basically what it's saying. Now, I think that's all I'm going to talk about here. I've always been said, and I still agree, that that the loot boxes and many mechanics within gaming are a little bit predatory. Now, I got <laughs> I got a, a, a lot of flack from a guy who actually might join us in the podcast in the next couple of weeks um, as an Adam Telfer replacement, although no one could ever replace Adam. But he is a, he's a, he's, an, he's a specialist in game design, and he pushed back on the idea of using the word predatory. Um, but my 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 point here is is that you're 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 basically putting these mechanisms in place that act as 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 rewards, and you're using the same type of mechanics that you see in in casino games. And loot boxes are probably the most egregious of them all. And basically, both these people are basically these these bodies are basically suggesting the same type of thing and and how consumers behave and particularly children so i can't i have it's never going to be considered gambling legally but it is is something that i think should be age gate past 18 so we should see but one of the things they definitely want to do is get this guy on and and do some kind of like uh talk about what does predatory mean in the in the mechanic in the in the context of uh, free-to-play um but not only for children but for adults as well and uh, and we'll, we'll try to have this discussion. But for now, I think what I think will happen ultimately is that we will get legislation out there passed that, that will restrict children from loot boxes and other predatory, what I would consider predatory behavior. He's going to get so pissed at this. I, I love it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll bring him on and, and we'll have a, a proper debate about what is predatory and what is not and what that word means because he basically thinks it's just a buzzword for people that don't understand what the fuck's going on, <laughs> so, which basically implies I don't know what the fuck is going on. Um, so anyway, any thoughts on, on loot boxes and red legislation in, Europe, in uh, Australia and UK? I mean, I just, Eric? I just think this is a mechanic that probably – is already sort of an anachronism and it's just like we're managing its decline right i think if you're like a progressive game designer and when i say progressive i don't there's no political connotation i mean just like looking towards the future of your uh craft you're looking past loot boxes right if you're just trying to like i don't think that that's anything that people think i don't think i don't think that the the mechanic is something that people believe is sustainable um and durable for like the next 10 years yeah i guess the irony here is that in um sorry because of because of these these rules that have been sorry because of what's going on with user acquisition it's like if i'm right and you need to build more uh deeper mechanics and spend depth within these more casual games you know, loot boxes become, or gotcha mechanics become even more important, right? To build in depth of spend. Um, and it's, what, I, what I'm trying to say is that people could go down this path again of, of adding it back and being more aggressive and not less if, in, in desperation of trying to like figure out how to, how to manage this, you know? When we talk- Does that make sense? When we talk about it later, I'd be curious to, I think what I will, what I'd like to prep is, so they came from those little, like the, what are they called? Like the little mechanisms where you put a coin in and you get like a random prize of the prizes available, right? That's basically where it came from, but it's the digital version of it, right? 
Yes. Yes. Okay. So I, I wonder, and I have, to, I don't know what, what Australia does, but where, where is the line drawn? Is the issue because it's, it's digital and it's people are on their phones all the time, but is there the same, because those things, those, those, um, those types of machines are all over arcades. And then I wonder if, if for children, I understand, but if they're going to start doing anything that, that targets adults, then what happens to casinos? Um, so just, I, I wonder how, and, I, and I'm just bringing this up as food for thought. I don't, I have not properly researched this, but I would, I, if we do debate this, I would want to look at, like, it's, it's prevalent. It's, a, it's in a lot of places in a lot of different forums. And I just wonder where, like, which, which areas they're going to start to really focus on. And then what would be the data that supports as to why that needs more focus than some of the others? For example, digital versus physical. Right. I, and this is the debate. Right. And, and legalizing of gambling and all the things that are going on right now, it's like it's more of like maybe a philosophical debate to some degree in terms of what is appropriate, what's not appropriate. And that's why ultimately I'm like, OK, I, I don't think I'm ever going to lose. For me, I don't know. I don't like gambling. I don't know why. It's something about gambling bothers me. Right. It just doesn't. It seems very uh, base part of human uh, existence. Um, but like. But I think what's what's the appropriate response is that like there's no way we're going to lose this on the 18 and older. That, I think that ship has sailed mm -hmm. to some degree. So restricting kids makes more sense, um, you know, to protect you know them as they as they grow. But I don't know. Yeah. But then I think but that's the debate. And I think we should start looking at arcades too, because those machines are in arcades and they take money. And there's a limit to how much you can. It's like 25 cents or whatever. But I just wonder where. I'm curious then to break it between, well, then what is the difference between the physical and digital? And is it just about the uh, the ability to distribute? No, you're, you're making, Eric's no, making I, at me. No, I just, <laughs> yeah, this is, I I think I, I, I'm i gonna have to prepare for this, particularly this guy who's like clearly smart and, and, and knows what he's talking about. So like, I, I'm going, I'm gonna have my hands full with this dude. Um, so we'll, we'll, I'll bring it, I'll bring him on. We'll do a test run, <laughs> see how much he cleans my clock. Want to know how your results stack up against other gaming apps? Well, now you can. AppsFlyer, the industry leader in measurement and mobile analytics, just released a new tool providing benchmarks on 21 key growth metrics for over 20 categories in 25 markets for both iOS and Android. And it's available now for free at appsflyer.com benchmarks. Yes, you heard that correctly, completely free. In just one click, you can easily compare installs, retention, revenue, media cost, and much, much more. With these benchmarks, you'll be able to get intel on your competitors, set goals based on insights from the top 10% of mobile games, explore new markets and growth opportunities, inform soft launches, and understand market dynamics and trends so that you can adapt your UA strategy accordingly. Over the past seven years, AppsFlyer's industry data reports, trends, and insights have helped thousands of mobile app marketers to excel at their jobs and grow their apps. Trust them. They know their data. Head to appsflyer.com slash benchmarks now for more info. Today's global gaming marketplace, your players want to pay how they want, when they want, and where they want. Accepting localized forms of payments and keeping up with what's trending is key to growing your gaming business and to finding new untapped markets. That's where Exola Payments comes in. With just one simple integration, you'll be connected to over 700 localized preferred payment methods on a global scale including bank cards, digital wallets, mobile payments, cash kiosks, gift cards, special offers, and more. Plus, with Excel acting as your merchant of record, they assume the risk of cost of complex VATs, sales taxes, laws, and regulations. Leave every transaction to the experts while you focus on retaining and expanding your audience. You can get started today. Just head over to exola.pro slash paystation or look for the link in the description of this episode. Exola Payments, it's what your gaming business needs to succeed. All right, uh, let's bring it home, Mr. Seifert. Great, so um, two weeks ago, I think two weeks ago, I published an article 
that I had spent quite some time working on called Mapping the Post-ATT Future of Mobile Free-to-Play Gaming. And um, I had been kind of not, I don't want to say like working on this because it wasn't like a continuous concerted effort, but just kind of like thinking about it um, using, you know, sort of like idle background cycles for some time. And I decided to just sort of like dump everything out into an article. Um, and it kind of starts with, it starts by referencing an article I wrote like two years ago for the Deconstructor of Fun blog called, uh, I'm blanking on the title, but it's something like the, the Coming Ragnarok Within Free-to-Play Gaming. I didn't write the title. Miska wrote the title. Uh, I like Greek mythology. I don't like Norse mythology. I don't know anything about Norse mythology. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have brought Ragnarok uh, you know, into the, into the conversation, um, myself, but I talked about how in the history of free to play gaming, I think there's, there are basically like three categories or three like hierarchical tiers of changes that we've seen that impact the category in, in, you know, in different magnitudes. Right. So I talked about, you know, a permutation, which is sort of like the lowest level of that hierarchy being a, a type of game design change that impacts game level interaction and engagement behaviors. And so like a permutation would be something um, that, uh, you know, uh, like a, a new game design mechanic or a new uh, game design prototype that that kind of gets, you know, proliferated across the industry. And I think the, the sort of canonical example of that would be the chess system in Clash Royale, right? Like when Supercell introduced that, a new way of basically uh, maintain, you know, of, of, um, of reward, of, of, uh, you know, delivering retention um, without having an explicit uh, play gate or content gate, right? So like it kind of replaced the old star system, right? Or the health system, the live system, right? So in the old system, you'd have like three lives. If you played a level, you failed, you lost a life and you had two more to play. Well, with Clash Royale, Supercell said, look, you can play however long you want. It's just that the chests are only going to be available on this cadence. So in a way to sort of like limit play time, that so, so that you kind of remain stickier for a longer like general timeline they they just limited the access to the rewards for the um for the matches by only giving you three chests that that unlocked on a timeline right so that's a permutation the a, 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 like an abstraction level higher than that a revolution so, so I think these are business model changes that inform the way that that free-to-play games are monetized right and so i think the canonical example of this was just in-game advertising in-game subscriptions battle passes Right. So that's one layer higher than permutations. These are a little bit broader uh, impact, the sort of general commercial environment. And then at the highest level are, are evolution. So these are market level changes. These are things that change the market. Um, and then and, 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 you know, as a result, trickle down to uh, both the business model, monetization model and uh, sort of game design um, uh, sensibilities. Right. And so I think, you know, the the canonical example of this is just the introduction of introduction of games as a service. Right. So live ops. Right. That's a that's an evolution. Right. Um, and, and, and because that was like a market level change, and even like the introduction of like the, the app store, app stores generally like digital storefronts on mobile. Right. Those are evolutions. And what I argued in this piece, uh, the Ragnarok piece, was that I felt felt that ATT and just generally this sort of like new and privacy environment that was emerging was another evolution. Right. Like this was going to change the market for uh, free to play gaming on mobile. And so this article is kind of continuation of that level of thinking with, you know, the benefit of like two years of data um, and, and the ability to observe what's ha actually happened. And so I make the point in, the, in my piece in the, the um, mapping the post ATT future of mobile free to play gaming, that free to play as a business model did not precipitate the mass proliferation of smartphones, right? Free to play didn't cause smartphones to free to play. The existence of free to play didn't make people want to go buy smartphones, right? Free to play arose as a reaction to the proliferation of smartphones. And consumers have propelled free-to-play to total ubiquity on smartphones with their wallets, right? And so for that reason, right, there's a – and I make, you know, I make the point in the article, there's something like a billion iPhones active. There's something like three billion Android devices active. The, the access is there. The devices exist. Free-to-play is a genie that can't be put back into the bottle. Once consumers become acclimated to a price point of zero for content, Increasing the cost of access is a fight against economic gravity, right? People are used to free content on mobile. Everyone has a smartphone. Free-to-play is not going to just die uh, because of ATT or really because of anything else. It's going to evolve, right? There's going to be an evolution uh, or, or the evolutions happen and there's going to be revolutions and permutations that adapt to that evolution. And so what my article was about was what are those uh, revolutions and permutations, right? And so 
one question I wanted to answer before I dove into what I think those are is, well, has ATT actually impacted the mobile free-to-play gaming market? And I think anyone on this podcast would say, yes, of course, right? Well, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but I think you'd all say, yes, of course, ATT has impacted the mobile gaming market. But you'd be surprised. There are people that say, no, it hasn't. ATT has had no impact on the mobile free-to-play games market. It's all macro. And so what I wanted to try to do first was just establish that, yes, ATT has had an impact on the mobile free-to-play gaming market. And then answering that allows me to then describe how the free-to-play gaming will adapt as a result, right? And so what I did was I shared um, this chart from an article I wrote back before ATT was actually launched, where I tried to like categorize the impact across different um, across different, uh, you know, types of content and different, um, you know, different, uh, classifications of like ad tech and stuff. And so just taking the one chart from, from the content side, um, I broke out, uh, you know, high AP monetization games, moderate IAP monetization games, ad monetized games, subscription monetized apps. And I just sort of assigned, you know, e- uh, extremity of impact. And I said, I thought high AP monetization games, Overall impact extreme, right? So if you think about the spectrum, you've got the core games on the right, social casino games on the right, and then the other side of the spectrum, hyper casual, hybrid casual, whatever on the left, uh, you know, in terms of just monetization. Um, and uh, sorry, sorry, Laura. And I said, high IAP monetization games, extreme impact. Ad monetized games, extreme impact, right? And this was pre-ATT, pre the launch, right? So just keep that in mind. So, um, and then I talk about, uh, you know, well, what do we think would happen to it? So if we think about, okay, well, that's, that's what I presumed the impact to be from ATT. Now, what, what have I historically said about my sense of what the impact would be on free-to-play games from a recession, right? And I wrote an article about that as well uh, a couple years ago. What, so pre this moment, right? And I, I wrote an article called What Happens to Free-to-Play Mobile Gaming During a Recession? And so I make the point that while free-to-play games themselves may be thought of as substitute goods that attract more demand in a recession, right? So if you think about in a recession, instead of going out to the movies, you, you, you watch Netflix. Instead of going out to the movies, you rent something on Amazon Prime because it's cheaper, but it's not, nonetheless the same experience. I make the point that IAP games themselves, uh, free-to-play games themselves probably are substitute goods during a recessionary environment, but IAPs themselves, the actual in-app purchases are probably luxury goods because they're separate, right? I can download a free-to-play game without ever spending any money, right? But if I do spend money, that's obviously within the context of a free-to-play game necessarily by definition. And I make the point that I think IAPs are luxury goods that are likely to be seen as less attractive or less necessary when consumer discretionary spending is strained, right? And so I think if you put aside design factors like pay to win, it's tautologically true that free-to-play games can be played for free. And so IAPs have to be seen as luxury goods, right? They're characterized by desire and convenience with demand tracking income. And so if income comes down, the demand for those IAPs is going to come down, even if the demand for the actual games themselves doesn't, right? And so it's, my, yeah, I, I disagree with that point, but but I'm not going to. I'm not. This is matter. Yeah, I'm also kind of in actually. the middle of a roll here, man. <laughs> I know. I just I'm, I'm not going to let that lie because I don't think that's true for. Well, for okay. Well, what, what do you? What do you? So no, I think core people that spend. You know the, the 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 general calculus of the of the whales spending insane amounts of money. Those type of people are not as economically uh, elastic in terms of spend, so they keep spending no matter what. All right, so. I mean, I don't know, I because I think every time I've actually met, you know, someone who would be considered a whale in a game, um, they're just like a normal Joe. They're not like some mega rich like Saudi prince or whatever. But anyway, I mean, we could. That's not that important to the I, to the broader point. No, it's not. So that's why I'm saying but, continue. But I, I think but. the the bigger idea that I'm the bigger point that I'm making is prior to this moment, prior to ATT, and I, I'd already written what I thought would happen in a recession, and I'd already written what would happen, what I thought would happen with ATT, right? And so I've got you know this th- these are hypotheses that I've had for years, right? And so bring them to bear now. What is the net impact, right? And so if you look at Sensor Tower, they estimate that consumer spend within mobile gaming will have declined by a little more than 2% in 2022, right? So let's just say it's demonstrably true that the mobile gaming market has is contracting this year, right? The super, super, super Sensor Tower is estimating that. I think we all see that. We see that in earnings. Like if you're in the weeds, like I am day to day, it's just demonstrably true, right? And so why? And so I've written this series called The Mobile Marketing Winter. And I make, I, I say, I sort of ascribe that 
contraction to, to three factors, right? So one is weak, potentially worsening macroeconomic environment globally, a reversion to pre-COVID engagement norms, and then, and then ATT, right? And so if you look at, and so what I've tried to do in the last couple of months is parse apart those impacts. And I won't go in to like the totality of the argument there because I'd have to, it would take an hour itself. But if you just look at Platika and Applevin, and I've got a chart in the article, right? Um, that I think you can explain the, the sort of uh, downtrend for, for the revenue for both Platika and Applevin. And I only picked those two because they're public gaming companies, right? Uh, there's not that many to pick from anymore. Um, I mean, I think part, and that's partly explained by ATT. So I think if you try to tease apart the impact and and you just look to what I had said would happen to the high monetization games. Well, that is a, that Playtica fits that hypothesis, right? If you look at the chart that I have in that article, you see Playtica's top line revenue going up, 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 but quarter by quarter. You see the introduction of ATT, and then like a quarter later, the trajectory starts going down. And that was before anybody was talking about a recession. This was Q1. Right. This is before yes, anybody you. was talking. Q1 about- and Q2 Q1- had nothing to do with recession. Well, no, for AppLovin, yes. for AppLovin, the inflection point is Q4 2021. No one was talking about inflation then. No one was talking about a recession. How else could you explain it? And this is a quarter after ATT launched. Right. So anyway, I say, look, we'll never know. It's impossible to know what the individual contributions are. But what I think you should do if you want to be just responsible as a game developer is to say ATT probably contributes something here. And I should fortify myself against that because guess what? Even if I'm wrong, um, at least I've built a sort of more robust marketing platform, right? So that's, I make that point. And then I go on to describe three ways that I think free-to-play gaming is going to adapt, right? The first is that I think there's going to be a supremacy of centralized publishing services. I think you see the return to like, hey, um, we need a, a, a strong, uh, you know, sort of sophisticated central publishing services, right? I can't, as some small studio, just spin up a game, spin up an MVP, scale it, and then just start like throwing UA individuals at it. I need a big centralized publishing service because the marketing has gotten so much harder as a result of ATT, right? I can't just throw 10K at Facebook, turn it into 50, and then, you know, uh, let that snowball, right? I need probabilistic attribution. I need like real data science uh, infrastructure. And that just doesn't, uh, comport to having like a small startup scale up from three people and build a game that then goes on to make like a hundred million dollars. Right. The other, the other sort of adaptation that I talk about, and I go into much more detail in the piece, it's very long, but the other adaptation I talk about is the importance of personalization for in-game content and diversity of player journeys. And the big point there is like, okay, well, um, I've acquired a user. I've done the impossible post ATT. I've acquired a user. Uh, but I know a lot less about that user now than I did pre-ATT because pre-ATT, those users were vetted, right? They were vetted for relevancy. They were vetted for fit to that product. And now they're not. So what do I have to do? I have to vet them in the product. I have to personalize that experience early on to understand what kind of user are they? Are they someone who's likely to be a high value user or are they someone who's likely to churn very quickly? I have to understand that and then put them on the appropriate content path, right? In order to make as much money as possible and give them the best possible experience. Whereas before Facebook did all that for me, they just gave me a lot of highly qualified users and I had one content experience. Now I have to tailor the content to the sort of profile that I assume this user has based on their early interactions with the game. And the last adaptation is focus on multi LTV player economics. I've been banging this drum for years and years. Um, And it wasn't, it was, it was too early, but also it just didn't make any sense prior to ATT, but now it does. If I have, again, if I've done the impossible and acquired a user, well, my CAC is higher than it used to be. And so the just sort of normal one game LTV probably doesn't satisfy that in terms of the the profitability of the unit economics. And so what do I have to do? I've got to get more than one product LTV out of that user. I've I've got to give them more than one product experience and allow them to monetize in more than one product to make my CAC back, right? And so how do you do that? You do that with cross promotion, with building a portfolio, with actually having enough content that can service this user journey through multiple games, right? And so, you know, that again, and that kind of connects to the first idea of like this sort of like stronger centralized publishing org, which is, well, how do you do that? You do that with tech. It takes a lot of tech to be able to do that. You're basically building an ad network in order to service, you know, like 
uh, effective cross promotion because it's not just about showing an ad to a user. It's about showing the right ad to the user at the right moment when they're likely to churn or likely to sort of like not spend any more money in that specific title. Right. So I think all these, all three of these things are part of the playbook, the post ATT playbook. And I think you're already starting to see a lot of this emerge, uh, part, partly from like just new SaaS businesses that are coming to market to support this and partly through all the consolidation we've seen over the last year. So that's the article. It's a, again, it's a very long article. I think it's like 5,000 words. Um, I didn't even scratch the surface on the, the three, um, adaptations, but, uh, this was something I'd been thinking about kicking around for a long time, finally put pen to paper. And it's weird because the first week it got like an okay amount of traffic. And then like over the last, the last week, it just exploded. So I think it got shared in a couple of places. Um, and that's why I thought it was interesting to, to talk about today. I actually, the real incremental thing I, I never really thought about was, um, you know, designing your game with different audiences in mind since you're not targeting the whales like you used to, and you're building games to optimize against people that spend insane amounts of money, right? Now you're basically trying to bifurcate the audiences into different buckets and providing different experiences for them. That's very bright. That's smart. But that's been, um, that's been done for a while. That, I would, that falls to me under the category of personalization. So delivering people the live ops they want to play, delivering them more of the ones that they, they spend on or the more of the ones they engage with and less of the ones that they don't more competitive versus less competitive because we get this, this medley of different player types. That's how I'm interpreting that. No. Yeah. And yeah, I'm not into the, the game design weeds though, but like I imagine it's going to be more important as well, I guess more strategically important going forward than it was in the past. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, that's really, really interesting. Um, yeah. I, I still can't believe people are still head in the sand because uh, I'm telling you, Google, Apple, you know, every major publisher out there are freaking the fuck out right now because UA is no longer as valuable as it used to be. It needs to be rethunk and and games need to be re rethunk in terms of how they're designed. Um, and everyone I've talked to that's in the weeds is saying the same thing. But there are still some people out there that are just like, oh, no, everything's fine. Just work harder. Yeah. <laughs> if I hear that again, I'm going to strangle someone. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. All right. Uh, I think Eric has a hard stop. I'm going to talk to Laura about cars um, and we'll figure out what, what to get for her. All right. Um, well, see you guys next week. See you next right. week. Take care. Later. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructorofun.com slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.